We get a lot of questions answered for us about the afterlife in this passage. 2 Corinthians 5, 1, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We're getting new houses. Is, is that what that means? Verse 2, For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. We're getting new clothes. Is, is that what that means? For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Holy Spirit, more than anything, we want you to teach us the truth, the truth about Jesus you're our helper, and you bring to us understanding about the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. You also teach us about ourselves. You unearth things in me that I never would have seen on my own. And so I pray for us as we look into your word that it would teach us about the Lord and that it would teach us about us, that we would be filled with knowledge that causes us to live our lives for your glory. Jesus, we, we praise your name as our redeemer, as our Lord, as our sustainer, as the one who holds our future in your hands. We don't need, Lord, according to your word, to be tentative about where we're going or about what things are like after death. Lord, in you, we have this grand guarantee, and so we take great delight in it, Lord. We rest in it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this passage is written to those who believe on Jesus. It's written, when I, when I say we a few times in this teaching, I'm talking about those who have surrendered their lives to the Lord. And I realize that in the context of any gathering, there are some who have given their lives to the Lord by faith. They believe that he has risen from the grave. And there are those who haven't made that decision to, to follow him by faith. But we learn some amazing truths about who we are in Christ as children of God, those who belong to the Lord by faith in him. The tent, as we read, is a picture of our bodies, our physical bodies here on this earth. That's what the scripture is teaching here. And the house is a picture of or symbol of our new bodies that we will have in the heavenlies. So we have our physical frames here and now, but we will get new bodies in heaven. That's what the scripture is teaching us. It also speaks of being clothed here. And this isn't about just clothing for the sake of style or clothing for the sake of warmth or even clothing for the sake of covering our nakedness. Clothing in the context of the word of God is how he sees you. Not how people see you, but how God sees you. And this is of the utmost importance. I'll ask you a few questions, since this is titled Questions About the Afterlife. What do you want to wear? I don't usually pick out 
my own clothes if I'm going somewhere important, but I do have veto power, right? They're, my wife or my daughter's like, what about this? And I'm like, nah. Or yes, yeah, so that's about what it is. But what do you want to wear? And this is, isn't just speaking of our attire. From Genesis all the way to Revelation, the Bible talks about how we are clothed. And it definitely speaks of God looking at you, not the way people look at you, but God seeing you and his perspective of you. And is it in Christ or is it not in Christ? In the garden, Adam and Eve, they sinned against God. They broke his commandments. And right away when they sinned, when they disobeyed God, they knew it. They knew they had sinned against God and they became aware of their nakedness. So they went and tried to cover themselves because of their sin. God saw them for what they were, sinners, right? But then what happens? An animal was killed, and the skins of that animal were used to cover their nakedness. Once again, a picture, a symbol of something wonderful, that God the Father would send God the Son, the Lamb of God, to be our covering. And as John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. How does God see you? If you believed upon Jesus, he sees you through Jesus' righteousness. If you were to skip forward to the very last verse in this book, in this, sorry, book, chapter, chapter 5, verse 21, we get a wonderful truth. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Ultimately, God the Father sent his son, Jesus came to die for our sins because our righteousness is like filthy rags. Clothing ourselves in holy rags that can't cover our sin, can't wash us away, and then Jesus comes and becomes our covering. What do you want to wear? Go all the way to the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. It speaks of the saints that are clothed in white Bright robes, clean robes. That is the righteousness of Jesus, completely pure. Is that because we're sinless people? <laughs> is that because we don't disobey God? No, it's because Jesus' perfection has been transferred to us. That's the way God sees you if you are in Christ. What do you want to wear? That's what I want to wear. I want to put on Christ. Because I know as I come before God in my own righteousness, I, I can't approach him. I can't be received by him. But through Jesus, that is our clothing. That is our standing. Is there still ugliness you know, in our lives? And we're not making light of sin. It's a serious matter to fall short. Clothes that change the way God sees us, that change our standing in the Lord. God the Father seeing us through the righteousness of God the Son. Those are the best clothes you could ever wear. The righteousness of Jesus. Are you in the righteousness of Jesus today? Or are you living in your own so-called righteousness, your own so-called goodness? Every person in the world is in one of those two camps, either being seen through the righteousness of Jesus because he gave his life on the cross or they're trying to strive in their own goodness, their own so-called righteousness 
in order to be right with God, wearing the righteousness of Jesus. Not how people see you. We think of that with our clothes. How will people see me in this? How does God see me? Number two, do you want a new body or a new house? We covered this in the quiz a little bit. Now, your answer to this question probably depends on a few things. How injured are you? How sick are you? Are you younger or are you older? We had a few people, and you got credit, don't worry, for both answers because it was a matter of perspective, yet you couldn't miss that question. How good is that? But if, if you're healthy and you're not injured and you're not having lots of aches and pains, then you're thinking, why not take the mansion, right? But if you're hurting and you're struggling, you have aches and pains, then picking the new body is a no-brainer. Prime age, healthy, isn't it? So even if you worked really hard to earn your house, the money to have it built, or the blood, sweat, and tears to, to build it yourself, if you had the opportunity <laughs> to trade that house in, or however many houses you have, for a new body, I would do it in a heartbeat right now. I'd be like, sure, bring me back to prime, healthy, I'll, I'll take it right now. I was thinking about Warren Buffett. Do you think he would give up all of his houses he's, he's, it, for, to be prime age again? If he's in his right mind, he should, right? What good are all those houses doing him if, if he's ailing, if he's aching? Here it says that our bodies groan. Now, keep in mind the context of Paul being persecuted, Paul and his companions serving the Lord, beaten, imprisoned, suffering. But our bodies are literally crying out, oh no, right? Um, do you tell the people around you, when you get up, you actually like, make some noise, verbal noises, like, right? They're, they're groaning, look at me, I'm, I'm hurting, I'm aching. For some of you, it's just not the same as the way it used to be. And if you're still young, you're in your prime, you don't know what that's like. You just say, well, just exercise and you'll feel better. When I exercise now, it hurts. I used to say, oh, man, I, I, I feel good. I feel sore, right? Now I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm sore. It's, it's a lot different, you know, when I was half my age, right? People now, I don't know what the deal with this is. Maybe you've done it to me. Don't take big time offense. They hand me their phone. Hey, you check this out, right? Or sometimes they want me to watch it with them. It's like this little tiny screen and our cheeks are pressed up against each other. It's, well, if you've already seen it, do you really need to watch it with me? The answer is no. Okay, if you want me to watch it. But here's my point. I can't see it. They think I can see it. They're like, here, here, check this. Look at this. And I, I don't, my eyes aren't good enough. It, the font's too small. And I'm trying to blow it up. It's a big mess. You don't even think like that. But look at what Paul is saying. Our bodies are groaning. Tents don't last forever out in the weather. We're perishing. We're coming to an end. Paul being persecuted. Even you and I 
our, our lives, just the destruction of, of our work, the degeneration that we experience as we get older and older. And he says, I have a house not made with hands in the heavenlies. And that's talking about the brand new body that he knows he's going to get when he sees Jesus in the heavenlies. When I was a kid, I used to listen to Jimmy Swigert sing, yes, Jimmy Swigert. He's a good piano player, right? I mean, doctrinally wacky sometimes, morally deficient sometimes, but he's a good piano player. I think he's Jerry Lee Lewis's cousin. And when you're a piano player, like you watch piano players, and he's saying, I've got a mansion just over the hilltop in that great land where we'll never grow old. When I was a kid, I didn't hear the part about not growing old. I just heard about the mansion. I was like, I'm getting a mansion. I didn't care about not growing old. I was already young. The thought of getting old, I'm like, well, it's going to be a long time before. Now I'm, like, I'm thinking, in that great land, you can have the mansion, right? In that great land, a new body. I could care less about the mansion. Sounds way better to me than the house or the, the, the new body. Sounds way better to me than the mansion or the big, huge house. This is what the Lord has waiting for us as his son's and daughters. This is particularly powerful coming from the apostle and, and from Timothy and from Silas and Titus because of the trial of their persecution. Yes, I'm looking forward to a new body at 49 years old. Obviously, the majority of you who took the quiz are looking forward to a new body. Three of you are young and feel good. Oh, how they were looking forward to their new bodies, knowing I am here in this suffering state, suffering for the sake of the gospel. But God has for me a new house, a new body that's not going to grow old. It's not made with hands, but it's spoken into existence by God himself. Keep your eyes ever fixed on the Lord and his future for you. Have you gone through seasons in your life where you long for eternity more than others. And you will see that it has some connection to how you're physically doing, doesn't it? When you're really ailing, maybe you've been this sick before where you literally pray, just God, take me. I, I'm, I am so ready for my new body and to be delivered from this body of sin and death. Maybe you've been that sick or that injured before. and But really... Isn't that to remind us? Everything, what I have here is fleeting. My eyes on the Lord and what he is preparing for me. Not so much the, the mansion, which I believe it, that's our, our new bodies. Not about who's going to have the biggest house on the street. But Lord, you're going to restore to us lives without sin, without that destruction. When I'm sick or especially injured, I think more in terms of no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more pain. But even if our relatively good times, in our relatively good times, none of it compares to what the Lord has prepared for us. Do you want a new body or a new house? Well, knowing now that the new body is not going to wear out, I'll take the body for sure, right? Third question, do you have the Holy Spirit? And you'll see in verse 5 why this is of the utmost importance. 
Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God. I mean, God has prepared us for the heavenlies. To have these old frames, these old bodies, I speak to just a few of you, not all of you, put away and to be given new life, who also has given us the Spirit as the guarantee. How do you know that you're wearing the righteousness of Jesus? How do you know that you will have a new body? You're saved if you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee. Is the Holy Spirit living in you? Is he comforting you? Is he guiding you? Is he changing you? Is he convicting you? Is the Holy Spirit for you personally, the helper that Jesus described to us? Did not Jesus say when he was on this earth, I'm going to send the helper to you. Do you know him? Does he dwell in you? Is he guiding your life? Is he sanctifying you? Is he changing you? The Holy Spirit in you is the guarantee of God. Sometimes we get mixed up and we think, well, you know, if I'm feeling saved, then I'm saved. No. If I have some sort of peace, peace is the product of salvation, yes, but people have peaceful times and it doesn't necessarily mean they're saved. The Spirit is the guarantee of eternity. I read to you from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Same truth, same glorious truth, correct? The Holy Spirit is God's guarantee of eternity. So we can approach this for the personal application of it. What does that mean for you? What does that mean for me? First of all, be glad when you can't practice sin without being prodded by the Spirit. Rejoice that you can't break God's commands without being convicted. Are you glad about that? You should be. That you can't go astray without being afflicted by God. Don't bemoan that. Instead, rejoice that the Holy Spirit is showing you the path that is good and convicting you of the path that is evil. Some would say to you, oh, that's just environmental. Those are just the people around you putting pressure on you to live a certain way. Put yourself in a new environment then, a different environment. Try to go someplace where it's very dark and you can just pursue your sin. If the Holy Spirit is in you, he will hound you. Praise his name for that. People around you will be having a blast disobeying God and you'll be miserable. Now, I don't say praise God for the errancy. I don't say praise God for departing from the path of righteousness. But I do say praise God that he convicts and that he guides and that he even afflicts us when we are in our sin. He convicts us and you know right away. Yes, he's given you a conscience. Every person has a conscience. But if you are in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit and you can't get away from him. Have you experienced that before? Do you know what it's like? I hope that you do because it is a great thing of rejoicing. Even when we are struggling and straining, and even when our wills are battling against the Lord, 
oh, to have the Spirit right inside of us. Nobody's there even telling you you're disobeying the Lord, and the Lord is, is, is right there, right? You don't need your mom or your dad or your friend or whatever. When I pray for people, when you pray for people, don't you pray, Holy Spirit, if they're in rebellion, heavy hands, right? Just be on them. I think of David, King David, when he sinned against the Lord. He writes in the Psalms about how miserable he was. He just said, my bones hurt, right? Was it because he was old? No, it was because he had sinned against God and he knew it. And the hand of the Holy Spirit was heavy on his life. The Holy Spirit also empowers us to be witnesses. Isn't that what Jesus said? Do you know of the empowerment, the power of the Holy Spirit in you to be a witness for Jesus? Do you see the Spirit at work in you to serve him, to serve the Lord in ways that you could never serve him without it? I hope that right now you're saying, yes, I'm so convicted when I'm in sin and try to depart. That's the Holy Spirit. I hope that you're saying, yes, I've been a witness at times, and I know it's not me. I know it's not my own goodness. I know it's the Spirit in me empowering me to be a witness for Jesus Christ. In worship, being a worshiper who worships in spirit and in truth, I praise God for the evidence of the Holy Spirit in my life. What else do we have? We have the fruit of the Spirit, which we studied in depth in Galatians chapter 5. I thank you for the conviction. I thank you for the fruit. Even though I'd like to have a lot more of it than I do, every time I'm, I'm more gentle or I'm more kind or I'm more patient, that's evidence of the Spirit of God. Why is this of the utmost importance? Look at verse 5. Because the Holy Spirit is the guarantee. If you have the Spirit in you, you have the everlasting life of heaven. Yes, we can quench the Spirit. Yes, we can put off the Spirit. We can push Him away. But I pray for you, pray for me, that the work of the Spirit and that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit would ever be present in you. The Lord Awaken me to what the Spirit is saying, that I would walk by faith, not by sight, that I would walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. Look at ourselves, praise God for that work. And when we see the fruit of the Spirit in others, praise Him for that, because that is the evidence of the Spirit, and the Spirit is the guarantee of eternal life. Now, there's a misapplication of this, and it is to judge the soul of a rebellious confessor. What I mean by that is a person who confesses Christ but lives contrary to the commands of Christ. It's to say, I hope that you take great comfort in this verse if your life has the fruit of the Spirit. But should we take great comfort in this if a person's life doesn't have the fruit of the Holy Spirit? No, we should not. It's dangerous when we presume to apply this to another person when they're living a wayward life and saying, I, I know. Actually, the Bible says that the Lord knows those who are his. Does it not? And that 
he who names the name of Christ, let anyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. The Lord knows those who are his. It is our job to say, don't have the Spirit, have the Spirit. Don't have the Spirit, have the Spirit. I don't see anywhere in the Word of God that you and I are ever supposed to console a wayward soul or console somebody about a wayward soul. That puts us in the judgment seat of God. And when any person is living a life that is pursuing disobedience to God, we should be praying and pursuing, not sitting back and saying, well, they're sealed, so we can't do much about it. That's a dangerous application of such a wonderful scripture. The Spirit is the guarantee of heaven, not what I say, not what you say. So this passage was written that the Spirit-filled would have great assurance in the greatness of God's guarantee. So stand in that solid security and realize that in the Spirit, we have this bright hope of heaven. New bodies, and it gets even better, way better than the new body. Because let's look at question number four. What happens immediately after you die? When I say you, I mean if you're in Christ, if you believed upon Jesus Christ as Lord. Verse four, so, are, so we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. So I'm here, I'm in this body, I'm not with Jesus in heaven. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So the earthly tent is breaking down, and when a Christian's tent finally collapses, he is immediately with Christ. She is immediately with Christ. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Paul is saying, if they kill me, I'll be with Jesus. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Powerful. Because of this, we should not dread death. Now, it doesn't mean we're not afraid of pain. It doesn't mean that we're not going to struggle with suffering. But the scriptures teach that the back door of this life is the front door of heaven. And that in Christ, because his spirit dwells in us, that we don't have to wonder, what's going to happen to me after I die? We have immediate heaven. I'm going to see Jesus. Believer, you're going to see Jesus and live with him forevermore. If that is not a big deal to you, then I ask you, is he your savior? Is he your redeemer? The idea of, of seeing Jesus' face, the idea of, of being absent from this deteriorating body and being able to be with the Lord, to have him right in front of me, to be able to look into his eyes, to be able to bow at his feet, that is a great comfort. What happens immediately after you die? To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. And there are a lot of errant teachings, and some of them are, are from the long past, and some of them are still fairly current. Some teach purgatory, this in-between, so to speak, place that people go. It's not heaven, and it's not hell. It's like a holding tank 
for you if you've been sort of bad or you've had been sort of good and have some sort of faith and but not quite enough that is a direct contradiction to these verses the idea of purgatory has been used it's it's a doctrine of man that's been used as a manipulation tool for people that are still living on this earth to say you know you have a loved one and you don't know for sure about them they might not be lost forever they're in purgatory and this is what you can do to get them out of purgatory and get them into heaven so these are then I love that the word of God makes it clear to us that in Christ you can be clear of your future. You can be clear about your future that to be absent from your physical body is to be with Jesus. There isn't a purgatory. And the abuses that come along with that whole idea, um, not just the monetary, but that this is what you, you need to do, this is what you need to pay, because your Uncle Steve was a creep and you gotta get him out of there, um, how that can be abused. Some teach soul sleep, but the Word of God says that our bodies go into the ground, but not our souls. So the idea of soul sleep would be, and this is scary to me, that when we die, it's not absent from the body present with the Lord, but that we, our souls sleep in the ground and, and we just wait there. I don't like that idea of sleeping below the ground and, and waiting around, Right? I read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. I hope you know it well. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The whole point of this passage here is to receive comfort. So the Bible is teaching this, that if a person, that if a Christian dies before the rapture, dies before Jesus comes back to get his church, that their body goes in the ground, right? But that their soul immediately goes to be in heaven with the Lord. And that at that rapture, their bodies will be brought up, right? And old body, made new, joined with the soul in heaven. I'm hoping and asking the Lord that I get raptured. If you, if you get raptured, if we get raptured together, then our bodies and our souls are going to go up together. But this idea of soul sleep isn't consistent with the scriptures. It's not comforting to me, that's for sure. Some teach Abraham's bosom, and that's because of what's recorded in Luke 16, Maybe you're familiar with that, with Lazarus and, and the rich man and the great divide that, that separated the two. And that's before Jesus died and rose again. And that, that Abraham's bosom was a place for Old Testament saints. But here we are in the New Testament. After Jesus' death and resurrection, he's gone to prepare a place for us. And so we see this incredibly comforting truth that to be out of this body, to, you, you've been there before at a funeral of a loved one and say, that's not him, that's not her. They're not there anymore, that's correct. If they were in Christ, Jesus Christ is Lord, they're in heaven with him, they're seeing Jesus' face. That's their tent, right? That's the, the body that got worn out, but they live forevermore with the Lord. 
So what's to be the result in our attitude, knowing that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord? How is this supposed to affect our perspective, knowing that when we close our eyes in this life, we'll be opening our eyes to the face of Jesus? What does it say in the verses? That we should be well-pleased that we should be confident, that we should live lives that are literally well-pleasing to God, that it should please us, and that also we, sh- we can't say, oh, I'm going to be with Jesus when I die, therefore I have no desire to please him. That's not consistent. No, I'm going to see the one who took my sin upon him, that took the nails that should have been mine, that took the torture that should have been mine, and I'm going to be able to praise his name in person, How wonderful is that? We should have well-pleasing lives. Isn't that what it says? Oh, how pleasing to behold the face of Jesus, to look into the eyes of our Redeemer, to behold the Lamb of God who takes away my sins, who takes away the sins of the world. That is a confidence that you and I can have. Do you know your destiny. Are you confident? Because that's the scriptural terminology of what happens immediately after you die. Is that pleasing to you? Or is it apprehensive to you? Everybody wants to go to heaven, nobody wants to die. That's a song, right? But what I'm talking about death, is, is is it not pleasing to you because you don't know if you're going to see Jesus? Is it not pleasing to you because you don't know if you have the Holy Spirit as that guarantee? You have feelings, you have emotions, you have a conscience, but as far as that empowerment, as far as that conviction, as far as that fruit of the Spirit, you look at your life and and you say, what kind of faith do I have? You can know, you can be confident of heaven. You can be confident that you will see Jesus. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to be filled with dread. You can know that being absent from your body is to be present with the Lord. It's not by good works. Good works are good to do because they shine the light of Jesus, but they don't save you. It's not about, you can't be saved by just coming to church. You might hear the gospel when you're gathered with the church, It's good to build you up. It's disobedient to not be a part of the church, the body of Christ. But in and of itself, it's not going to save you. To be baptized in water won't save you. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Faith in Jesus. Not a work. Faith is not a work. Put your faith in the Lord that he has risen from the grave. Here's my life. I'm turning from me and following you. If you confess him as Lord, he will fill you with his spirit. And you need the Holy Spirit. And we've we've seen why we need him so desperately. And then the confidence that comes 
from knowing that you're right with God, from seeing and experiencing the Spirit work within your life. This is what Paul spoke as he was there suffering great persecution, as he was there pouring out his life to get the good news, which I just spoke, into the, the hearts and the ears of those who were still lost and wandering. These truths are pleasing if you've trusted in Jesus. They're greatly comforting if he is your Lord. We are people of distraction. We're people that put things off, aren't we? We're people that like, you know, if it's important, sometimes for some reason we just don't address it. We're just like, I'll do that some other time. <laughs> procrastination is bad in a lot of areas. Like you procrastinate on your, your financial bills, that's, that's bad. You don't pay them on time. But to procrastinate with putting your faith in Jesus, your eternity is on the line. Talk about being late. <laughs> Talking about a late penalty, right? There's no purgatory. There's no in-between. Deciding that Jesus really is who he says he is, that he is worthy, that he is holy, that he is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world and saying, I'm in. I don't know how you're going to change me, Lord, but I know you can do it. Give me your spirit. Fill me up. That is the prayer. The prayer where you run to him and give him your life. Lord willing, the next study will cover the judgment seat of Christ and will attempt to differentiate between the great, the great white throne judgment and what is called the judgment seat of Christ or the bema seat of Christ. This is something that a lot of us wonder about. As Christians, are we going to be judged? Um, what's the nature of that judgment? Is it the same judgment that unbelievers go through? When will the judgment seat of Christ, which is spoken of in this chapter, when will that occur? When is the great white throne judgment how are they different from each other? And so we'll, we'll look at what the Word of God says about that if he, if he gives us a, a next service together. Aim to sort all of that out. Lord, we sing about what is yet to come. We sing about what is in store for us as your children. The glory of it is, is beyond what we could ever imagine on this earth, but by faith we believe that you've gone to prepare a place for us, that you're going to give us new bodies, that we're going to see your face. Lord, I pray for anyone who has believed in you that they would take great comfort in the assurance that you provide, that they would sing these songs with the promise of heaven, with a not just a I hope so attitude, but with a I have an eternal hope attitude. I pray that we would have the light of the everlasting on our faces. We see this world just striving against death, Lord. The people that are way out there, they just don't want to be old. <laughs> They're trying to doctor themselves up, trying to plastic surgery themselves and just do all kinds of stuff, Lord, because they're just trying to avoid the inevitable. They're telling themselves they're super cute when they're old, Lord. It's just, it's a mess. Lord, we know what your word says. We're wearing out. Um, 
but we take wonderful delight in knowing that you have something way greater for us. And that's what we look to, Lord. Um, we want to serve you and be near to you as long as you have us walk in this earth, but we take a lot of, of comfort in knowing what is to come. I pray for, for those who haven't yet received you, Lord, that, that they would. I say yet, it's, it's, it's the faith that I pray you would make real in their lives, Lord, that they would respond to how you're drawing them to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.